Earlier this month, G7 leaders met in England and issued a joint statement in which they rebuked China on several issues, including the autonomy of Hong Kong and the freedom of its residents. How did the British come to obtain Hong Kong? And I appreciate say the word obtain is not the right word for it, but conquer, whatever that is. Yeah, well, it's a, it's, it is a complicated process. So um, there was a war that was fought between um, the British and the Qing, the, Qing, um, the Qing rulers of China. The Qing rulers of China in, was a Manchu family that took control of um, the realm in 1644. Um, I am enough of a historian to want to get the the dates in there. The, the thing <laughs> What's mentioned- history without dates, right? <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time saying it's not just about dates, but you do need to have some of them. Sometimes in there. their directions they help. Did you know that China lost Hong Kong to Britain in a war, a war that was fought over opium, opium that the British Empire sold to China by force against the will of China's imperial government. And that this narrative of loss, humiliation, and defeat at the hands of foreign powers is currently being taught in China's education system to instill patriotism and inflame nationalism. Hey there, news peelers. Today is June 25, 2021. And this is Adele, host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel in the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. June 4 is an important day in Hong Kong's history. It's a day in which tens of thousands gather in Hong Kong's Victoria Park to observe the anniversary of the 1989 Tiananmen Square Massacre. Although China's authorities have banned that annual gathering and this year have even sealed off Victoria Park, Hong Kong residents still showed up on the peripheries of the park, gathering in small numbers and lighting candles or their cell phones' flashlights in defiance. Apprehensive about Hong Kong's future, Dozens of big international companies have left Hong Kong and more are leaving it still. And the leaders of G7, the group of seven wealthy democracies that met in England in mid-June, issued a 25-page joint statement in which they asked China to respect freedoms and high degree of autonomy for Hong Kong. A spokesperson from China's embassy in London retorted sharply, stating that the G7 joint statement reversed right and wrong on many issues related to China including Hong Kong, and that it deliberately slandered China and arbitrarily interfered in China's internal affairs. Have you ever wondered why Hong Kong receives so much international attention? What makes the case of Hong Kong so special? To better understand Hong Kong, its past and present, 
We spoke with Dr. Jeffrey Wasserstrom, a Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Wasserstrom is a specialist in modern China history and has a strong interest in connecting China's past to its present and placing both into global perspective. The link to his academic homepage, which includes a list of his numerous publications, is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Dr. Wasserstrom and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Wasserstrom, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. We've heard so much about Hong Kong in the news lately. Hong Kong is important. It's important to China, to human rights issues, to international business, and to Western democracies. What I want to know is this: What was Hong Kong? Let me let me explain that question, if I may, please. You know, cities like Alexandria, Rome,、uh, Beijing, and later Constantinople and London have been in our history for a long time for many different reasons. So. Was Hong Kong an important city in history? A big trade center, a pilgrimage site,、uh, a cultural mecca, if you will. It's no Hong Kong.、Um, I would put more in a category of、um, great modern cities that emerged very quickly at a particular great modern city. Oh wow! Okay, so it it. If you went back, if you went back several hundred years, you would not have. You've mentioned some of the cities that have been around for a very long time, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm near a great city that wasn't around then,、uh, Los Angeles, that was、um, a fairly small community until a series of events transformed it rapidly, and it began to grow. In the case of Los Angeles in the 20th century,、um, in the case of Hong Kong, it was really in the 19th century that it grew. It wasn't. It was a set of communities existed there、uh, for a very long time, but they weren't a city.、Uh, there wasn't really a city of Hong Kong until the middle of the 19th century, and it became a city like some other cities、um, around the world, in part via processes of, of colonization、uh, and development by、um, by an empire that was ruled from a capital very far away. <laughs> that's a, that's a big hint. The British Empire. How did the British come to obtain Hong Kong? And I appreciate say the word "obtain" is not the right word for it, but conquer whatever that is. Yeah, well, it's a it's is a complicated process. So、um, there was a war that was fought between、um, the British and the Qing the Qing、um, the Qing rulers of China. The Qing rulers of China in was a Manchu. Family that took control of、um, the realm in 1644.、Um, I am enough of a historian to want to get the the dates in there. The, the thing <laughs> was history without dates, right? <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time saying it's not just about dates, but you do need to have some of them. Sometimes their directions they help. So the Qing was the Manch, ethnically Manchu ruling family that、um, governed an empire 
uh, whose capital was um, uh, Beijing from 1644 until 1912. It was um, until the end of the imperial uh, period in, in China, when then there was a period of- End of imperial period, you mean um, the Qing dynasty uh, was the last empire of the China? The last of them. Okay, yes. okay. And um, the Qing wanted to control, wanted to limit trade with foreign um, powers to a very small number of basically two ports in um, the southeastern part of the empire. One was Macau, which was a colony of um, Portugal, which was a major trading empire of the time. Um, and the other was the city of Canton. Um, both of these are on the Pearl River Delta area. And in Canton, there were British traders and other traders from other places that were limited to just um, access to um, the Qing Empire and to the China market, um, very, very limited there. And the British um, wanted much more um, open mm -hmm. access. Uh, there was a time when there was almost kind of religious fervor for the idea of um, free trade. Um, and the British were in, in an expansive, expanding mode and they felt constrained by the Qing wanting to limit uh, their trade there. And they, they also were quite frankly uh, frustrated by the fact that they, what they wanted to have with trade, what you wanted to have with trade and international trade is you want um, the other country to be more desirous of your products than your country is of their products. Uh, so that you can trade and that you have a balance of trade in your favor, that the other, the country is paying more gold and silver or whatever cash to you uh, for your goods than you are paying for their goods. So what, the, in this case, the country that was paying more uh, precious metals and cash was Britain to China? Right, because the British were becoming, we, we, we call this thing the opium war that broke out, which is getting ahead of things. But the way I like to say is opium that this war. is- this is, opium's a drug that people uh, are addicted to and they want more and more of. Um, the problem was that until opium was introduced as part of the trade, the British, there was something that, the China, that, that, that China had that the British were addicted to and they wanted more and more of, so they, more and more of their precious metals were going into China. This was they were addicted to tea. And so the tea trade meant that, that tea was flowing out of China and there was nothing really that the Qing Empire wanted to import um, from, um, from the West in the kinds of quantities that the West wanted to um, import tea. So the British and the you, you wouldn't normally think that, right? The West has all these goods, but this is right. not the story. That's well, fascinating. The, the thing was that the Qing Empire, you know, this was, the, this was one of the great economic uh, powers and one of the great countries of the world. And the Qing had the attitude that really China was largely self-sufficient. It had within its, its oh, borders wow. what it needed. So it didn't really need much from, from the West. So the British and the Americans were part of this as well, wanted to figure out what could they provide that Chinese consumers would want more and more of. And they came up with this idea of trying to bring in opium. Which, which the British, Send drugs. Which the British, oh, yes, boy. it was early drug trade. The British had opium that they were growing in one of their other parts of their empire, India. Um, the Americans sometimes got some from Turkey. There was opium that was used within China before this, but it was used more in small amounts as kind of medicinal. So basically, like 
like, like drug dealers. There was an effort to try to get the Chinese consumers to want more and more of this so that it would right um, the trade balance. And that was something that the Qing state did not want to have happen. So it tried to block the importating, importing of opium. The, the British argument for this was, look, we, we've got all kinds of, of products that are wonderful that we would like to sell to you and that your consumers would like to have, but we're not allowed to have enough access, open access to the China market. You're limiting our traders to this one port. So that argument could be discount. made in 2021, right? Yeah, yeah, there was, yeah. So that <laughs> argument was made on both sides that, look, we've got a trade that, that we think is fine, you know, from the Qing point of view, we don't really need anything that you've got. So we, we worry about the unsettling effect on the empire if we allowed more access. You have strange customs. Both sides saw the other side as having uh, strange customs. So this led to a conflict in which the British thought they were defending free trade. Um, the Qing thought that the British were defending a drug trade um, in a sense. And so um, the Qing tried to stop um, this trade from happening. The, the British chafed at this and a war broke out. And the war broke out and the goal of the British in the war was to get more access to, um, to, China, to the China market. Um, when the British won this war um, in 1842, they forced a treaty upon the Qing that would open up parts of um, the China coast to British trade and settlement. And they got access to parts of several key ports along the China coast. And they got Hong Kong, um, an island that had an attractive harbor, that had fairly small communities. They got that as a colony. So one empire has a trade imbalance with another empire. They look for different things that they can sell to balance that trade. They settle on opium. They go to war over drugs. They essentially acquire a small part of that other empire's territory. This almost sounds, you can make a movie out of this. It's, it's quite amazing that they're, um, I mean, I'm working on the one, the one part of 19th century Chinese history that there has been a Hollywood movie about which is the Boxer Uprising of 1900. Oh, yes, yes. The C-55 Days at Peking. But it's quite amazing. There have been films made about the Opium War in, in China, but there hasn't been a Hollywood spectacle. So, um, yes, it, it's ripe for that. I mean, Hong Kong, to, to, to just back up a little bit, Hong Kong was at the fringe of the, the Qing Empire. It wasn't, it, was in a, it wasn't really, in a sense, like it's wrong to think of it as being a city that was clearly part of the Qing Empire that was then um, taken over by this other empire. It was a part of the edge of it that then um, was developed by this empire that, um, that, that gained possession of it. Whereas, for example, the city of Shanghai, uh, a port up on the Yangtze River, farther up the coast, was a significant trading port with a couple of hundred thousand um, residents and major markets and trade and many ships going to and from Southeast Asia that the British got a piece of and helped to develop into it became an international treaty port. And it then went from being 
a medium-sized city to a giant city in a major port in the world, Hong Kong went more from being um, a peripheral zone to um, becoming a major city. When, when Hong Kong was ceded to the British Empire, was this this huge sense of loss for the Chinese, kind of like, <laughs> kind of like, remember the Alamo moment for us Americans in the 1830s and 40s? So um, there was the the treaty was was seen as something that was forced upon the Qing, mm-hmm. and um, you know it did include these enclaves along um, several other kinds of more well established places, but it wasn't as though there was a deep kind of I mean this wasn't like a part of the realm that um, had all kinds of um, deep cultural associations with it. So for in the second Opium War, um, very complicated event, 1858 to 1860, um, it was a very messy um, war in which there were some emissaries suing for peace from the, um, the British side who were kidnapped and uh, mistreated and some of them killed. Then the British, um, as retribution for that, burned down one of the favorite palaces of the Qing um, of the Qing ruling family, the old summer palace oh, no. in, in Beijing, one of the most uh, beautiful um, pieces of architecture in, in the country. And that event mm-hmm. is remembered as the destruction of something that was precious um, to the empire. And if you actually, we don't, so we don't have kind of um, strong associations with this, um, Old Summer Palace, but the destruction of it—it's now—it now still exists in Beijing as ruins. A picture of those ruins uh, is shown on the cover of one of the sort of uh, a cartoon history of modern China um, or illustrated history of modern China uh, designed for teenagers. That's wow. the image that that is something that stands for the um, evils of this period that's um, described in many Chinese uh, government textbooks as the hundred years of uh, national humiliation, this period when China was laid low. Um, so Hong Kong is part of that story. You know, the, uh, the British gaining Hong Kong as a uh-huh. colony is part of that, but there weren't the same kinds of deep um, associations with Hong Kong as a, as a built place, as a place of... Um, a cultural center and things like that. There is now a strong, there later became a strong yeah. uh, identification with Hong Kong by the people, um, including largely people of Chinese descent who built it up into a great city um, in that period from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. Use the word great city. At what point in its history was Hong Kong recognized as an important city? You know, Bridgetown and Barbados at one point becomes an important port for the British. Singapore becomes an important port. When did that happen for Hong Kong? In the 1870s. I've got a flip answer for it, though. No, the reason why I say in the 1870s uh-huh. is because um, in Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne, <laughs> Phileas Fogg stops in Hong Kong. And there's a, there's a lovely description of it as being like a piece of Surrey transposed as if by magic to the antipodes. Um, and, in, and in that great work of the 1870s, my first, my first 
history, historical love in China was the city of Shanghai. Mm -hmm. And Phileas Fogg in that book is heading from Hong Kong to Shanghai, and then he gets away to shave off some time by skipping it and going straight to Yokohama. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, so I think of that as the Hong Kong moment when Hong Kong is arriving. But then Jules Verne said another book completely in China, and he said it in Shanghai to make up for that. To so, make up for his not, not, not right. traveling to Shanghai and going to Japan and straight instead. So in the, it. In, the, in the 1840s, though, when Hong Kong became part of um, the Brit, was the, one of the victor's prizes from the Opium War, um, Lord Palmerston, um, the British Foreign Secretary, when he found out that his negotiator had gotten Hong Kong Island, um, he actually fired the negotiator because he thought it was such an unpromising uh, spot. He said, it's, it's a barren hill with, with hardly um, a house upon it. It will never be a mart of trade. Because what, what the British wanted was something, Macau was quite a, quite a flourishing uh, colonial city. Which, which, as you told me, the Portuguese had colonized. The Portuguese had that. And then Canton was a great city, was really the great city of the, the, the region. Uh, and was under Qing control. So the hope was that the British would get something that could compete with these. Um, and Palmerston thought there was no way that Hong Kong, you know, Hong Kong Island would, would ever be in that same kind of class. And I like to mention that because it proves <laughs> that Hong Kong has a long history of making fools of forecasters because it eventually became a city that was a mart of trade that far surpassed Macau. Yeah. Could yeah, meet with Canton. And the only mart of trade that was more important than it was Shanghai, which was in was less than Macau and less than Canton at the time. So you have a shifting of this that places um, the the importance of different cities can can alter very much. So in the the late nineteenth century, the story of the rising sort of stars of um, port cities of the area. Um, Hong Kong and Shanghai are two that rise, um, that rise together to to compete with, and in some ways yeah. surpass um, Canton. And they they trade off, and they and they're connected in many different ways. The the most important financial institution that arises in that area is the um, Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Company, yeah, which has a yeah, foot in both places, has a headquarters in both places. And we have as the story of the late 19th century and 20th century, you actually have Hong Kong and Shanghai competing, collaborating, and at certain points sort of trading places with each other with, um, in differing ways. Um, Shanghai becomes the more important financial center. It also it has the more important stock exchange. It also is the cent first center of the Chinese film industry. It becomes the Hollywood of China. In the 1930s, and then in 1930s. So this is before communism. I see. Before communism, it is the center of those things, and then after 1949, uh, Hong Kong takes over a lot of the roles that Shanghai had played because you have film directors moving from uh, Shanghai to Hong Kong. Hong Kong. You have restaurateurs and and hoteliers moving. The various people who think they're not going to do well in a communist party run state, move down there. Gangsters move also from to Hong Kong. To Hong Kong. <laughs> so you have a shift of roles um, between the two places. So why don't we take a short break and then talk about what comes next? British Hong Kong during communist China. 
So, Professor Wasserstrom, it's 1949, Chairman Mao's communist forces win China's civil war and almost literally push out the nationalists out of China who reestablished themselves on the island of Taiwan. So in 1949, Hong Kong is this little spot next to this giant red communist country. And Hong Kong is British and is certainly not communist, as you just alluded to it. So how does this work out? What does Chairman Mao uh, say about Hong Kong? Is Hong Kong a thorn on his side? How does that narrative develop? So it's really complicated, but in some ways... um some ways Hong Kong is useful um, to useful. Mm. It's useful because it's a way it's a, it's a kind of um, in between space between um, different worlds. So some sort of um, foreign exchange way, even though, even when, when, when um, the people's Republic of China, the new country formed in 1949, when the Republic of China, the sort of enduring country is now, um, in, in, on Taiwan, um, there can be ways in which it can be useful to get foreign currency exchange into the country via, um, via Hong Kong. There is a need to not, of course, go to, um, not to be involved in too many conflicts at once, of course. Um, and there is an ex expiration date in some ways on Hong Kong. This we didn't get to in the earlier part. Professor Wasserstrom, I'm sorry, yeah. you said not to be involved in too many conflicts. I didn't understand what you mean by that. Oh, what I mean is that if, if, if there had been a desire at a certain point in the 1950s, say, to, um, to try to move to, to bring Hong Kong. Oh, like a military party rule. They're by that point involved in the war in Korea. So, you I know, see, there I are. See. There okay, are I got some it. things about how many um, ways you can um, connect, uh, exactly. can, how many conflicts you can be in. Uh, but the, the missing part of the Hong Kong story earlier is that um, Hong Kong Island becomes a British colony in 1842, mm -hmm. 1843. Um, Kowloon Peninsula across the harbor from Hong Kong Island, part of that becomes uh, ceded to Britain as a colony in 1860. But then there's a whole nother expanse of territory that doesn't become um, come under British rule until um, 1898. And that's what's called the New Territories. And it's a massive amount of land, islands and um, farmland that's now part of what we think of as Hong Kong. But it was not, get, it was not ceded to, to Britain in perpetuity. It was leased to Britain, those last parts, with a 99-year lease. So there was always a sense that in 1997, those parts of territory would um, come back, would come under Chinese, um, under the rule of Beijing. So in some ways- Wait, um, I'm confused. Yeah, yeah. Yes. In 1997, everything went back to China. Right. So- Now you're, in, spl you're splitting the baby. So, I don't even know about 1898. So uh, was there another I, war in 1898? Yeah, there were more. It was it was not war, but pressure. There were pressure uh -huh. put on um, on. There was another treaty, um, but that's a lease, and the lease would run out. So the possibility was that in 1997, Hong Kong Island and part of Kowloon would still be British colonies, but the new territories, the parts that were under that were only leased, was where a lot of the power for Hong Kong was created, a lot of the food, a lot of the fresh water. So. If 
um, the British had tried to keep um, Hong Kong Island and the part of Kowloon that were colonies, then there might have been moves to, to seize it from them, but it also would have been, they would have been vulnerable, they would have been isolated uh, because they were so dependent on the nearby uh, areas for that. So it became quite clear that in 97, there would likely be uh, a transition of all of Hong Kong to Chinese rule. The, the Hong Kong that we see in movies, the high rises and the bay, was that, is that in the least section of this larger Hong Kong area? No, that's mostly that's mostly the part that was uh, that was under colonial control. What you don't see in those shots of the uh-huh. high rise of that is where a lot of the food is grown, where a lot of the water supply comes from, where a lot of the um, the electricity comes from that lights up um, li- lights up those buildings. And so, actually, Hong Kong to call it a city, it is. I keep calling it one of the great you know a great city. It's a territory that includes some very urbanized spots, incredibly densely populated, but also um, a whole constellation of villages and, um, and islands uh, are also there as part of this greater so, Hong Kong. So well. you're telling me that, l- at least legally speaking, not, not pragmatically, legally speaking, the United Kingdom, the British government could have held on to Hong Kong, the Hong Kong that we see in TV and demonstrations last year, that could have stayed British if they wanted to. They could have tried to keep. They could it. have tried. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, it's. I mean, one of the things that is we so need to intriguing is that after World War II, there was a process of of seeding colonies, of largely decolonization. There were pressures of course, yes. for that. Um, and in 1984, when the deal was struck for the handover, 1997. It's important to realize that the trajectory of the People's Republic of China at that point was toward um, was seen at least um, in much of the world as a liberalizing trend, move toward more experimentation with free markets, and the hope, uh, which turned out to be one of these other kind of failed forecasts. These ideas was that as economic development came to China, political liberalization would come in. And there was a kind of optimism by that Margaret Thatcher had, who was the, you know, in prime the, minister in the uh, 80s, prime minister in England. She thought that free markets would inevitably um, lead to political liberalization. So the idea of Hong Kong being delivered to, uh, to become part of the People's Republic of China under Deng Xiaoping had a very different kind of feel than being delivered during the height of the Cultural Revolution, might have been to the era of Mao. So leading up to 1997, both Western democracies and China itself were at different places emotionally and their trajectory of the growth of democracy and also China's sort of opening up. What about the earlier question that I asked? Like, it's 1949, and we're inching forward, 1950, 51, 52, 53. Was there a lot of uh, revolutionary blustering on the part of Chairman Mao and other Chinese leaders at the time to get back Hong Kong or the drama of Hong Kong or anything like that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It's not a, it's not a period. I mean, it's a period that I think there, there, there is work being done on and there needs to be more work being done on. 
I mean, there were, first of all, there were, um, it's important to always have the people of Hong Kong in the story. Mm-hmm. And so there, course, were, yeah. there were protests in Hong Kong against colonialism. There were, there was sympathy with um, the revolutionary cause within Hong Kong earlier periods. Um, so, you know, there were, there, 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 there was resistance to the idea of colonialism internally. And during the Mao era, there were, um, during the Cultural Revolution, there were large um, strikes and demonstrations in Hong Kong. And actually those were very violent um, that were sort of in sympathy with the Cultural Revolution going on uh, across the border. But in, Did they in, know about all the atrocities of the Cultural Revolution in Hong Kong? Well, there were a lot of refugees who came from um, the mainland to get away from those things. But there were also activists within Hong Kong. It's, it's important to realize how um, diverse and varied a population uh, there was. So there was, and there were people in, there were people of Chinese descent in Hong Kong who, who chafed at being treated like um, second-class citizens within, um, in their own area, which is true of, of anti-colonial uh, movements in all kinds of places. There was, a, for example, the, the most attractive real estate in Hong Kong um, is the real estate on the peak. In the, uh, on the island of Hong Kong, there's a large uh, hill in the middle and which has the best views of the harbor and things like that. And for periods during the colonial period, you were not allowed to buy land uh, in the peak district there if you were of Chinese descent. That was kept for, um, for, pe- for the British. Really? So there were elements of the colonial structure but there were also people of Chinese descent who became part of, um, of, of the colonial order. So there, were, there was a lot of variation within that. And I think it's, I mean, that variety is actually a through line coming even to the more recent period, which, I mean, I know this is getting ahead, but now I think of Hong Kong as being under another period. Some people view it as being under another period of colonial rule where the co- shots are being called yeah. by the capital in Beijing. And there are people in Hong Kong who are in step with that for an order, and there are people who chafe at it. Um, and so we have, in a sense, um, different periods of uh, Hong Kong history in which there's been. Um, and, and there is a year, there's a year that splits these periods, and that's 1997, the handover. I, I, I want to talk about that specific period for a moment, maybe even that specific day that it happened. Uh, was it a huge deal in China, in, in mainland China? It was an enormous deal. And the way you can think about it, it was one of the first times that a countdown clock was put, and maybe the first time a countdown oh, wow. clock was put in Tiananmen Square to count down the time toward uh, the handover. And that's something that then would later, the, these kinds of countdown clocks to the Olympics was another yeah. kind of big moment of that. Um, so the handover was presented as this kind of, uh, and it was a, it was a big deal. Um, it's a big deal for the country. It was a big deal for some people within Hong Kong. Clearly there were people who have Chinese descent who thought it was good to see um, an end to British colonial rule. 
There were others, of course, who worried about what would happen um, under Communist Party rule. There were people who emigrated, who left Hong Kong because they worried about what was coming. And this was a kind of parallel, in fact, to the emigration out of Shanghai in 19, as 1949 drew close. Um, it wasn't the same kind of countdown, but when the, the Communist Party's troops came close to Shanghai, there were people who left. Who, who left. Um, there's a wonderful book by Helen Zia, um, a journalist um, in the US called The Last Boat Out of Shanghai that traces some of the families that left to go from Shanghai to Hong Kong or Shanghai to the United States or Shanghai to Taiwan in 1949. And this kind of, these kind of exiles uh, who worried about what's coming up, there were people who left Hong Kong before 1997 for that. There were families who wanted to maximize their opportunities to sort of hedge their bets after 1997 and encourage one child in the family to go get Canadian citizenship or settle there another maybe to go to the United States and others to stay and try to ride it out. And see. You know, I, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area about 1996, 1995. You would see all these families come and uh, just their child is living in this huge, huge mansion in San Mateo or Burlingame or in San Francisco. The parents are still back. They're kind of the situation that you're talking about. They buy this house for cash and sort of hedge their bets, I guess. And, you know, they hedge their bets. And, and this is, I, I mentioned early on, that Hong Kong has this long tradition of making fools of forecasters. And there were dire predictions about what would happen in 1997, which was that um, the city would just be destroyed as soon as it came under Communist Party rule. Everything that made it different would disappear immediately. There was a kind of Cassandra-like strain of prophecy about Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, and there were the, the terms of the handover were supposed to be that for 50 years after 1997, there'd be something called one country, two systems. Hong Kong would become part of the People's Republic of China in terms of defense and diplomacy, but it would be able to maintain its own way of life for 50 years. And Deng Xiaoping you know, said, you can trust us. We will let this continue. There will still be dancing. The horses will still... Horse races will still race, dancers will still dance. Um, and there were prophets of doom that said, don't believe anything about this. As soon as the Communist Party is, control, is in control, the newspapers will stop being able to criticize the government. Movies that criticize the government will no longer be shown in theaters. They'll become just like the mainland. There were other optimists who said, Actually, what will happen is once Hong Kong, with its freer ways, becomes part of the People's Republic of China, its ways will flow across the mainland. And actually, this will help kind of transform the mainland, which was already, in some people's minds, uh, liberalizing. And both of these predictions were, were totally wrong. Why don't we take a short break and we'll talk about the last 20 years of Hong Kong. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. 
Professor Wallström, you just said it. One country, two systems. Um, Hong Kong has been a part of China since uh, 1997. Gosh, <laughs> I have so many questions here. You laid out the two different competing uh, predictions of what's going to happen. Let me just ask it this way: Were there any surprises? Yes. After 19- yes, I think there were surprises on both sides. Actually, you know, this so. Is, um, so I'll give you one example of surprise. Like I, I did not, I did not go into the completely, um, completely doom saying everything will change for the worse right away. But I did make one prediction. I try very hard not to make predictions. But this I, is your I, own prediction. One this is my prediction. own prediction. Yeah. You know, just because I've said how wrong uh, people were. I I was in Hong Kong in 1996 for a showing of a film called The Gate of Heavenly Peace, a documentary about Tiananmen that I think is wonderful and the June 4th about the June 4th massacre of 1989. And some students asked me after the showing on a campus, you know, they what's going to happen to us? Will we be able to protest after 1997 after the handover? And afterwards, I said I don't know what's going to happen. But I later foolishly went on record by saying. I don't know what will happen after the handover, but this film, *The Gate of Heavenly Peace*, will not be shown in public legal settings after 1997. It's banned across the mainland. It completely contradicts, in many ways, the um, Communist Party's version of what happened in 1989. So there's no way they're going to be showings of this after the handover. No matter 1989, you mean the Tiananmen Square. It's about the Tiananmen Square、yes. protests and the June Fourth massacre that the Communist Party says did not take place, and you can't talk about on the mainland. Well, it didn't take place. So, in 1997, the month after the mass after the handover, the film *Gate of Heavenly Peace* played in the local theater all month long, and the oh movie, wow, the movie has been playing had play played for decades after that. If you'd asked me, will there still be able to be large gatherings to commemorate the the anniversary of June Fourth of the Tiananmen Vigil, I would have said, surely that won't be something that can happen under one country, two systems. But it did happen. You were able. So, are you the only person、that. who's wrong in your prediction, or were other people? No, I think there were there were other people who were more wrong. You know, I didn't think I didn't <laughs> think things would change. I didn't think there would be complete. Uh, transformation of Hong Kong to be just like a mainland city, but I thought that in political terms there would be a quicker tightening of controls. But and so the people who predicted that though will tell you it was just subtler than we expected. It was just slower than we expected. And I guess at the moment, just this last week, there were rules put in tightening controls over films, over showing of and making of films in Hong Kong. So it may be, it may well be, since the vigil has been banned now after years and years when it was allowed, it may well be that my prediction was just slower in coming true. That、yeah. Hong Kong probably is becoming a place where a film like *The Gate of Heavenly Peace* will not be able to be shown in public, but it took a lot longer than was expected. And、By the so, way,、um, yeah. speaking of films,、uh, before I f-、uh, before I forget, you mentioned that you were working on a film or on a book. No, I'm or, working、uh, on a I'm working on a book. Played a role as a consultant for documentary films like that one, The Gate of Heavenly Peace. What was that documentary one, film? And one about、um, Hong Kong. I was a talking head in a film 
Joshua, a teenager versus superpower about the uh, umbrella movement. But no, I'm, I'm working on a book that's about different portrayals of the 55-day siege of Beijing, uh, the Boxer Uprising of 1900. Mm, um, I'm working on a book about the different ways the story of that event is told in China, outside of China, uh, competing versions of that event in books, in novels, but also in films. So I'm, not, I'm writing a book. But What's it's the title of that book? Films, the Ghosts of 1900, Stories of the Boxers. Um, uh, I keep changing the subtitle, but it's called <laughs> The Ghosts of 1900. And when, when do you expect it to be published? Oh, uh, I in a couple of years. It's getting good. close. It's no, it's getting good close. to know that. Wonderful. Um, you know, you said that you were in uh, Hong Kong in 1996. This is so close to the handover. Did you have an opportunity to speak to any British dignitaries uh, then or after? Uh, so I didn't kind of I didn't get a chance to talk to any dignitaries then, but I did. Um, while I was researching Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, the, the book that um, I wrote that came out in 2020, um, I did carry out one interview with a British um, dignitary. I met with Lord Chris Patton. Uh, Wait, Lord that's, Patton, yeah. that's the governor. He was the last governor of Hong Kong. And um, now he's the chancellor of Oxford University. Um, and I went to meet with him while I was doing the research. I was in England and I asked him uh, about, actually in a way, a version of the question you were asking me about what surprised, um, yeah, what was yeah. surprising. And um, I said that my feeling was that if people were looking back on the period since 1997, after a variety of things that had been happening in just the last few years that had really tightened controls on the city. I asked him what, I, what he thought of this proposition that people, historians of the future looking back would be surprised at how light Beijing's touch was and how patient the Beijing authorities were in taking control on minimizing the freedoms in Hong Kong. They would be surprised by how light a touch was exerted for the first 15 years or so after the, the handover. And then they would be surprised at how quickly um, the tightening began uh, and how quickly controls began ratcheted up. And um, what did he say to that? Well, he nodded. Uh, he thought about it. He's a very thoughtful kind of person. And then he said something that I, I has really stuck with me ever since. Um, I quoted precisely in the book, but it was something like, when the snow starts melting, it melts quickly. Oh, which I thought was a really poetic way. To it put is it. poetic. And we we were talking in May of 2019, and so we were talking just over two years ago. And um, it's changed so much since then. Yes, and the 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 snow has melted so much more. Um, but again, in terms of the problems with predictions, you know. Um, in 2014, there was a massive protest, the Umbrella Movement. It's the biggest sustained protest in any part of the People's Republic of China since 1989, sustained protest in a city. And I was writing a book. I started writing this book. Vigil. When you say sustained, how long did it continue on for? It was um, 79 days, I think. Oh, it was wow. More than, okay. And it was in part, in, it was part similar to Occupy Wall Street. There was an Occupy of the downtown section. It was partly 
inspired by some protests that were happening in Taiwan around that time where uh, there, was, there was a protest pushing back against um, mainland influence. There was, it was influenced by many things around the world, but it was also very completely local homegrown. It was an effort to try to get more, um, more democracy. See, Hong Kong, and this is something that people argue about with Chris Patton's uh, rule. So the deal was set up that Hong Kong would be able to maintain its distinctive form of uh, life for 50 years after 1997. So it would end in 2047. 2047. Yes. Um, Hong Kong was never Democrat, was never a democratically run city under the British. Um, Lord Patton was appointed by London to be the chief, the, the governor of Hong Kong. Hong Kong had a very well-developed rule of law and it had a tradition of a certain amount of press freedom and academic freedom, but it was a colonial setting. Um, in the last years before 1997, when there was increasing anxiety about what would happen to the people of Hong Kong after the Chinese Communist Party took control, um, Lord Patton started trying to make Hong Kong expand the amount of democracy within Hong Kong so that when 1997 came along, what was continuing would be a freer city than it had been during the vast majority of time of British colonial rule. From what and you're telling was, me, it seems like this was an accelerated effort suddenly, right? Right. And this was viewed by Beijing as in some ways moving the goalposts because we said the city could stay the same, but actually you're increasing it this way. But then after 1997, lead, early years of 1997, there were efforts made by Beijing to limit the freedoms in Hong Kong. And that's been seen by people in Hong Kong as actually moving the goalposts. And the deal that was struck between the two sides for one country, two systems, there, was a, a, there were some sentences in there that said, over time, Hong Kong people would control, would govern Hong Kong. And so wait, that idea, sounds like that sounds like more than 50 years over time, Hong Kong. Over time, where it's no during this period. During oh, this I see. Period, I see. During the 50 years. Things year period. would be changed. So there was there was a local council, a uh, legislative council that had elections, but a fair number of the seats were kind of Jerry were, were rigged so that only some of the seats could ever go to opposition groups. And the chief executive, uh, the 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 new figure who was most like the old governor would be elected in Hong Kong, but only about 2000 local people would vote in that election. And the only people they could vote for were candidates that had been vetted so that they would be in line with Beijing. But the idea was- that <laughs> That's not time, democracy. <laughs> right. But the idea was it's supposed to be over time, Hong Kong people would have more and more of a role in this. So in 2014, the protests that erupted were an effort to say for Hong Kong people to really be able to uh, run the city and to stop the erosion of freedoms that was already starting to happen as Beijing was getting uh, more impatient. We really need to have universal suffrage and direct elections. And so the protests in 2014 were an effort to bring about um, free, free elections for the chief executive, and they failed. 
they went on for a sustained period, but they were in the end. Wow. Uh, the protest did not succeed in getting that. To me, and I'm, I, bet you, I bet you millions and millions of Americans, Hong Kong is like the UK, like Sweden, like America. That, but you're telling me a whole different story that it wasn't truly a democracy in our sense of democracy. Am I? Am I? It was am never I, truly a. It was never truly a democracy. It was never a place where interesting the most powerful person in the political community was elected by in an open election by the people within that community. It did have a highly developed rule of law. It did have a variety of things. I'll I'll tell you sort of so for my sense of why, how I knew that when I went to I traveled between Hong Kong and cities of the mainland, particularly Shanghai, quite often during the period after the handover. And the way that I knew I was in Hong Kong rather than Shanghai was if I looked at a local newspaper, I, there might be a political cartoon making fun of a Chinese Communist Party policy. And that and would be Hong Kong, right? In Hong Kong, you knew you were yeah. in Hong Kong. <laughs> and, and if there were something mocking the local power holder, forget the Chinese Communist Party, but the local officials, you knew you were in Hong Kong. If there were protests and people were arrested, they might quickly be released on bail. That would be Hong Kong, not even during this umbrella movement, a really intense moment. There were the, the police used tear gas, which was something that police had rarely used in Hong Kong. And that was shocking to a lot of people in Hong Kong, but there were people arrested who were then out on bail the next day giving interviews. And I thought like, this is someplace where there's a very different kind of rule of law. There would be people who were put on trial and the case against them that the police had said would be thrown out. That's something that really doesn't happen much on, on the mainland. In Shanghai, 20- for example. Yes. And the 2019 protests that were so um, dramatic, the, the, the protests in 2019 that led to Two years ago, tomorrow, there were two million people estimated on the streets of a city of seven and a half million, one of the biggest protests per capita ever, anywhere. Yeah. The yeah. protests were started there because of a um, proposed law that would make it easier for people arrested in Hong Kong to be extradited over the border to have to stand trial on the mainland. And the fear was yes. that that would effectively undermine one of the key freedoms, which was the rule of law. And then there were, the protests grew also because there were um, police uses of um, enormous amount of tear gas uh, as, and it was a, it became increasingly a kind of volatile movement in which there were some uh, protesters who engaged in attacks on property and defacement of symbols. Yeah. Um, and there were even very rare cases of protester violence against individuals, but there was much larger amount of violence by police against the bodies of protesters. And what the protests became about was a call for an investigation of the police violence. And the government refused to even consider having an impartial look at yeah. police activity. And the movement went on the earlier movement, 2014, was a movement for direct democracy. In 2019, though that was sometimes still a call, it was really a call, a protest against the erosion of some of the features of local life. What I distill from what happened in 2019 versus 2014 is that the 2019 movement 
in a sense, was more focused, if you will, than the 2014 movement, right? Yeah, in a sense, although it expanded over time, 2019, very specifically, right? The 29, so another way to think about it is 2014 was in part about expanding, expanding democracy within yeah. Hong Kong. 29, and, and the reason for that desire for expansion was a sense that there was erosion, incursion of, uh, against Hong Kong. The, the, the first protest, the protests that set the stage for 2014 were in 2012, when there were high school students led this largely, uh, including Agnes Chow and Joshua Wong, who became, have become important ever since. There was an, a move into Hong Kong of patriot, mainland style patriotic education. And students and teachers thought this is the thin edge of what will be something that will really do away with the difference in Hong Kong. We need to push back against this. So there were protests in 2012 against incursion of bringing patriotic education into the city. And that succeeded. The government backed, backed up and said, okay, we'll hold off on that. 2014 was an effort to expand uh, political democracy, but the 2014 protests continued and grew because of police efforts to stop the protests. So the protests became in part, as protests often do, a protest for the right to protest itself. Yeah. 2019, the fear was that the rule of law was being destroyed in Hong Kong by this extradition bill. Then the protest became about the right to protest itself. And then the protesters actually said, well, we've got five demands now, and we're going to keep going until all five demands are met, which included doing away with the extradition bill, an investigation of the police, and also- That was in 2020, during President so, Trump's- 2019, this was the massive protest stayed through the year of 2019, the last really big protest was on New Year's Day of 2020. And then the protests began, well, COVID led to banning of mass gathering. Yeah. And then also then um, over the course of 2020, the Chinese Communist Party really lost patience with all this and says, we're going to impose a new um, national security law on Hong Kong which really did make illegal all kinds of things that had been legal under the one country, two systems framework. Oh, wow. So really in 2020, it, it became an end of anything meaningful about the two systems, part of one country, two systems, except for different ways of making and spending money. In a sense, sort of all the parts of that second system that had to do with a, an independent judiciary, um, largely free press. There still is more press freedom in Hong Kong than over the border in the mainland, but it's rapidly eroding those kinds of things. And those kind, all the kinds of things, there were many things that you knew, I, I said, I would know I was in Hong Kong, not the mainland. There are now fewer and fewer of those. So it's a, a sense of a tightening vice. It's still, not, it's still not the death of Hong Kong. That's the wrong way to think about it. It's the end of certain features of what Hong Kong was, but there's still a quite extraordinary spirit in Hong Kong, a lot of creativity among people in Hong Kong, an effort to find ways to resist in the corners that exist there in the same way that people resist in, resisted in the former Soviet Union, yeah. uh, resist in places like Iran. You don't, 
you don't destroy it, it's wrong to think of it as a dead city but it's a city that's going into a very different kind of phase in its history yeah let's take a break here uh, stay with me as and professor wasserstrom as we get into the perspective So, Professor Wasserstrom, in 2017, uh, the 20th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover, President Xi gave his speech with the Bay sort of as the backdrop. And I won't take your time with the excerpt of that speech. You're probably very quite familiar with it. But one can pluck all sorts of emotionally laden words and phrases out of that, such as past humiliations, defeat, a weak China. What's the purpose of this narrative? It wasn't exactly uplifting. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very powerful kind of narrative. So, you know, there, there are a variety of nationalist national narratives. I mean, my own take of this is that every country, every, every, ruling, every ruling government has to tell stories that justify the legitimacy of their, of their rule. Uh, this is just something across political systems. Of course. If, you have, if you have an elected government, the story you tell is we won the most votes. There is a kind of popular sentiment for it or whatever. We, want, we came to power via um, an electoral process. If, if there's not an electoral process, then you have to come up with other stories to tell about why your group deserves to rule. And in the Chinese Communist Party has had a variety of stories they've told since 1949, um, several different stories. One of the stories has always been, until we came to power, the trend within China was that foreign countries were nibbling away at the territory and bullying. Uh, China had been once a great country and it was being bullied in the, in the world and its territory was shrinking. In 1949, though, there were a couple of other stories the Chinese Communist Party told that also had a certain power to them. They said, until we took power, China was being governed by the nationalists and others who were corrupt. We, our, our uh, officials are not corrupt. People don't believe, stopped believing that story so much. There's a lot of discontent with corruption in China. In fact, so President of, Xi is on an anti-corruption campaign. So he is he is trying to he's trying to make that story work again through um, through Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive. But it's a story that that in 1949, 1950, there was so much discussed with the Nationalist Party's uh, corruption that the story initially worked pretty well. Another story the Communist Party told in 1949, 50 about why we deserve to rule was. Before we took power, there were these gross divides between wealth and poverty, but we're doing away with that. We're creating a place where everybody enjoys the same kind of lifestyle. That's but, no longer a story. Exactly. That's no longer we have wealthy Chinese and poor Chinese now. The disparity so, is huge. So that's a story that doesn't work anymore. So what we see is that of the three kind of original stories, the one that has kind of endured in some ways is this one about until we came around, the country was, was shrinking in kind of territory and was not getting the respect it deserved in the world. So, 
So the Chinese Communist Party has doubled down on that, that story, especially since 1989, when there were the massive protests about, uh, which called into question just how popular um, the government was. And also the protests were largely anti-corruption protests. So it called into to doubt that. And there also was this question about whether goods were being di distributed earlier. So the Communist Party has another story that they started to tell, especially after Mao, that was, was a kind of new legitimating story. Under our watch, um, there's an economic boom that's improving the material conditions of people throughout the country. And either you're getting rich or your turn will come next. That story had a lot of kind of power, legitimating power in the late 1990s and early 2000s, but there is an economic slowdown um, going on. And some people are thinking if we didn't get rich, maybe we're never gonna get rich. So of the different stories that the Chinese Communist Party has told over the years, the story that most clearly has traction still is that story of a return to national greatness, is this story of overcoming a period of humiliation. So Xi Jinping has really doubled down on that in um, a variety of ways. I mean, his predecessors did too, but it's, it's becoming more and more important. So the saying that where some people are now talking about what's going on in Hong Kong is almost a kind of a second handover, a second takeover. Is it like saying Hong Kong, we got Hong Kong back from British, um, from colonialism, but now we've really made it part of um, the country in a way that we can take pride in. So there, there was an element of that. And Xi Jinping not only gave that speech, but he presided over a military display, the biggest military display that had ever taken place in Hong Kong. Um, oh, wow. So in a way, um, the Communist Party now under President Xi is basically saying, stick with us because no one will bully us. And they have an advantage in the, uh, I mean, so the other thing I think that's really important is to realize that he's part of a, there's part of a global era where in many different countries you have strongman, muscular nationalist leaders. Um, yeah. Trump fit into this pattern very much. Modi in India fits into this, this kind of appealing to a past golden age that um, a strongman leader is needed to make the country um, great again uh, in one way or another. Um, and these kinds of, we're living in an era of, of kind of ramped up muscular nationalism in many different places. And we see it in, in parts of Eastern Europe. Um, we see elements of it. Uh, well, certainly Putin uh, fits into that. Um, there's, you know, there, there's a way in which um, I think Xi Jinping fits into that while also fitting into um, Chinese historical tradition. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Wasserstrom. Thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News, of course, anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective.
the opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. Thank you.